You know how like 200 Starbucks stores have unionized since that first one in Buffalo did back in December 2021? And over 100 of those 200 struck in unison on Red Cup Day this year because the company, which by the way is one of the biggest private employers in the United States, refuses to bargain with its workers in good faith and has actually fired scores of them just for exercising their federally protected right to organize on the job? What's going on there? Yes! Welcome back to the Fingers Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Dave Infante, also known as Dinfante, also known as DJ Disappoint Your Parents, and I'm coming at you from Fingers HQ here in sunny, suburban New Jersey. Today, exclusively for paying friends of Fingers, I've got an interview with Jonah Furman, a writer and organizer at the worker publication slash platform Labor Notes. Jonah is also the guy behind Who Gets the Bird, a vital semi-weekly roundup of American labor news. If you spend any time on Twitter, well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear it, you should definitely try to stop doing that. I am too. But second of all, you've probably come across Jonah thanks to his relentless coverage of the U.S. labor movement. He and I first crossed paths last year when I was reporting on the six-week strike at Heaven Hill's Bardstown, Kentucky Distillery. I knew he'd be great for the Fingers podcast because of how well he can kind of get deep in the weeds of this or that union drive, but then still zoom out on what it all means for the overall landscape for workers in this country. Our schedules finally aligned in October 2022 when Jonah and I spoke about a ton of different related topics for this episode of the Fingers podcast. Obviously, we talked about his coverage of the Starbucks union drives that are happening all over this country, but we also talked about his take on why it's important to be honest about the health and strength of American unions, and also the best way for customers to show their support for workers organizing a shop that they patronize, which is not a boycott. Boycotts are way harder to pull off than you might think, and they rarely work. Anyway, it was a wide-ranging and illuminating conversation about consumer-facing food and drinks place in the United States' sort of resurgent labor movement, and I really hope you enjoy it. Before I roll the interview, I just want to say one more quick thank you for supporting Fingers with your hard-earned money. The newsletter generally and subscriber-only podcast episodes like this in particular can't exist without Friends of Fingers stepping up to underwrite my independent coverage about drinking in America. I am so, so grateful that you're one of them. All right. Without further ado, here's the Fingers Podcast with Jonah Furman. Jonah Furman, welcome to the Fingers Podcast, man. Thanks for having me. Jonah, where are you joining us from today? I'm outside DC. Right on. For those who don't know, Jonah is the writer and publisher of a newsletter called Who Gets the Bird? Uh, he's also a staff writer and organizer at Labor Notes. I asked Jonah to join the Fingers podcast today to talk about the labor movement here in the United States, specifically within the, the food and drink sector, because there's been quite a lot of that going on over the course of the past couple of years, especially in ways that people who don't even follow the labor movement have probably seen in mainstream headlines. I'm talking, of course, about Starbucks organizing. I'm talking about grocery store organizing that's happening at Trader Joe's. 
obviously Amazon does some food stuff itself. So there's a lot of organizing going on in spaces that I write about here at Fingers and cover for Vine Pair. And Jonah has been all over this beat, not just in terms of food and drink, but overall looking at the American labor landscape, which is shifting pretty rapidly these days. Jonah, I wanted to have you on to chat a little bit about that and and hear what your take is on not only you know how that landscape is changing, but also what it means for workers who are in the process of organizing their shops and thinking about organizing. Thanks again for joining us. Before we get into the meat of the matter, Who Gets the Bird is a fantastic newsletter. I highly encourage everyone listening to go subscribe, throw Jonah a couple bucks a month. He does human's work pulling together a invaluable digest on what's happening with labor organizing in America. Jonah, where does the name Who Gets the Bird come from? Oh, man. Uh, you know, it's like a in-joke for labor nerds. Basically, there was this famous quote from John Lewis, the mine, mine union leader from the 30s, who basically was using all these communists and leftists to organize his unions. And people were like, and he was like super conservative, aggressive dude. He was a complicated guy, fascinated guy. But they were like, how do you justify using the Communist Party and building your union of you know mine workers and steel workers and things like that? And he, his response was famously, who gets the bird, the hunter or the dog? Basically meaning like, yeah, I'm using, I will use the left to build the labor movement, which is like just this interesting dynamic for people who are now in the labor movement of being like, is this a progressive movement? What does this have to do with the democratic socialists? You know, it's this this push and pull of building the unions and, and the internal politics of the unions, which is what has always fascinated me about the labor movement. And of course, in the US, contemporarily, the left has been flattened and, and consolidated so much that the idea of a labor movement that exists outside of left politics in the US is unfathomable. But as you said, there was a time when there was a lot more variance across the political spectrum in this country. So that's who gets the bird. Again, I highly encourage everyone listening, if you're interested in the labor movement, even if you're not and and are just kind of curious to know more about what's going on with workers in this country, it's a fantastic newsletter. I'm a paying subscriber myself. I'm a big fan uh, and everyone should go subscribe. It's it's just who gets the bird.substack.com. Jonah, how did you yourself come to the labor movement? How did you wind up covering it? Well, I was essentially a very strange path. I was a touring musician in my early 20s. And when we would come home from tour, I would work low-wage, bad jobs. I worked in a bookstore warehouse. I worked office jobs, like sitting at a desk. I sort of was like, how do you get a good job? What's a good job? How do you, you know, I mean, it was this confusing thing where we would go out on tour and people would be like, we love your band and, you know, play in houses. And it was really fun. And everyone really, there's clearly like a social value to the band. And then I would have these jobs that have like no social value, like sitting in a desk that nobody calls the phone and receptionist as a, a, for a temp agency or whatever. So I was like curious about how you can get better jobs, started learning about unions. There was actually a big strike where I was living in Massachusetts, in Boston, at this grocery store. Talk about the food chain labor questions. Market Basket, this non-union grocery store, there's a big strike there. It was a very strange strike. The workers were on strike to get their, to keep their CEO's job. He was threatened by his, his cousin was going <laughs> to displace him. It's an amazing story. Wow. But for me, I was like, oh, wow, these workers like really shut down all these grocery stores. Now nobody can go to the grocery store. Now they have to do what the workers say. So this was sort of these combined things. Also, just sort of a general political, there was Occupy Wall Street, Ferguson, Black Lives Matter. There was a lot going on politically in the early 2010s. And finding the workers doing stuff was my way of understanding of 
where should a regular person start? So from there, I started volunteering and uh, ended up on staff at some unions and found my way that way. So sort of a unconventional path in, but very early on was like, oh, I'm obsessed with this. And you found your way to Labor Notes. And for those who don't know, outside of obviously the labor movement, Labor Notes doesn't necessarily have name recognition. Describe a little bit about what Labor Notes is and does. Labor Notes is, to put it in a thumbnail for people, it's sort of like the Bernie Sanders of the labor movement. It's the it's the part of the labor movement that's like, we need to be way better. We need to train members how to challenge the unions when they're not doing enough and lift up the good unions who are going on strike and acting democratically and letting members take a real leading role and doing a lot of new organizing. So it's essentially uh, two things, a media and organizing project. So we have a newspaper, we put out articles, we cover the labor movement, especially from the perspective of members who are trying to change the labor movement or embody a better labor movement. And then we're also a big training and organizing center. So we bring people together across industries. Basically, you'll have a teamster and a teacher talk to each other and say, oh yeah, here's how we organized our strike. Here's how we organized our new union and trade skills from the bottom up. So essentially it's a space for union members to come together, learn from one another and build a different version of the labor movement. Right on. With that said, the intros are done. Let's uh, let's talk about this question we've been talking around a little bit in the opening minutes here, which is the food system in this country, of course, is this big complex beast. One of the most important inputs, if not the most important input in it, is the labor that takes grains or vegetables or livestock and turns it into the meat, the beer, the produce that you go and buy at the supermarket. That system has not done well over the course of the past you know, two and a half years as the pandemic pandemic has hit hard. We've all seen the headlines. You don't have to look very far to find examples of the ways in which this system has started to break down. Early in the pandemic, I think chicken wings were crazy prices. Then there was baby formula shortages. No matter which aisle in the supermarket you look, you're going to find products that are either limited in their availability, just not there at all, higher in price, et cetera, et cetera. One of the narratives that is being used to describe some of these problems with the food system is that nobody wants to work anymore, right? We hear this refrain a lot. It's become a joke on progressive and left Twitter. And this idea that labor is not coming to the table. And that's why the American consumer is not getting the food that they want and need. That narrative, I think you don't have to scratch the surface too hard to, to find good, effective debunking of it. But from an organizing perspective, Jonah, like at, having covered the, the labor movement for a while and especially over the course of the pandemic, I'm curious to get your take on the ways in which that sentiment in the mainstream has shaped organizing within the labor movement. Like that seems to be fueling some organizing and frustration around the way labor is being contextualized in the mainstream. I'm curious to hear your take. The no one wants to work anymore thing, if you're trying to make any sense of it besides pure propaganda or whatever, is like, <laughs> right. one is like, there's a serious labor shortage. And this is new. And this is confusing to everyone. Basically being like, uh, there's more jobs than there are workers who are available to fill them. Why that's happened is an interesting question that I don't have the full answer to. I mean, part of it is literally like something like 500,000 people in the working population died from mm -hmm. COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not enough to explain a global labor shortage. But it's also true that essentially as the labor market gets tighter, people can trade up for better jobs, which means leaves the lowest, worst jobs the emptiest. We already have this issue in this country where you literally can't find American workers who are down to accept the privation that comes with farm labor 
So we bring mm. in migrant labor. We basically find, we search the globe for more vulnerable people who are willing to take a worse situation and bring them in. So that's not totally new, but obviously as the labor market gets tighter, the openings are going to happen at the bottom, right? People aren't leaving when they have the opportunity. They're not leaving a good job to go to a worse job. They're leaving a worse job to go to a better job. Right. So right. you're going to feel the pain most acutely in industries that are really bad conditions. And I think part of what's also on top of that, and this is more somewhat more anecdotal, but like in all the strikes of 2021, especially, and still somewhat, there was this feeling of we worked through the pandemic. We were essential workers. This was insane. Mm -hmm. And we need a payday. We need at least, a, if not leaving the industry entirely, not going to something where I don't have to go in and risk my life, mm -hmm. even if it's the same wages. You know, people say it's 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 time to pay up for for what we just went through. So I think that's part of it too. Like you have, a set, especially in the food chain, because these are our lowest wage jobs. In some, it depends what you're looking at, but a lot of our worst jobs are on the farms, or meat packing, yes, yep. in the in the processing or in the retail. I mean, this is like the retail and service. So you have these like some huge core of what's involved in food processing in this country is relegated to really low wage and low quality jobs. So obviously that's where you're going to feel it the most. Sure. And I mean, and those th that goes part and parcel or hand in hand with um, the way we talk about those jobs in this country. I mean, the, the predominant sort of, I would say, uh, I like I hate to throw around the term neoliberal, but it does apply in this case. I don't I don't like to use it as a catch all. But in this case, like the way we think about like, you know, low wage jobs is the burger flipper, right? Like that's embarrassing. You want to move out of that role at the same time when no one fills that role, you have a bunch of people very angry that they can't get their cheap fast food. So there's a disconnect between the way we talk about those roles and the way like we actually value them when the chips are down. And it's it, that disconnect has been, I think, contributing to a lot of the confusion and the anger and the distress around those flex points or those bending and breaking points that we're seeing across the food system. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I want to talk about some specific campaigns. The one that I'm most curious about, and I know you've covered in the past and continue to cover is also the one that's probably in the headlines the most for people who aren't living this stuff day to day because it is a mainstream news story at this point. And that's the, the Starbucks organizing drive. For those who are only paying a casual amount of attention, I was hoping to just kind of talk about like how this thing came to be. I mean, the there's, you might call it a brush fire of of organizing. These are all individual shops that are organizing one right after the other after the other. It's well above 200 at this point that have launched drives. We've seen the company push back with textbook union busting and not just the standard stuff, but also, you know, more aggressive scorched earth stuff of firing organizers, taking blatant anti-union actions, kind of their logical extremes. We don't always think about Starbucks baristas as core to the food system, right? That meat packing and latte making are not necessarily the same in terms of like calorie delivery, but they are both at sort of those bottom level jobs that you're describing. Can you talk through a little bit what Starbucks baristas began organizing around and, and the dynamics at play as shops you know, began to go public with their union, what other baristas kind of took from that? One of the things I would just say at the top that people should appreciate is that Starbucks is like the ninth, 10th or 11th largest private employer in this country. So we talk about it like coffee, you know, you're like, 
okay, it's a cup of coffee. It It's sort of, I mean, it matters that it's that industry, but the big thing about Starbucks is that it's a huge private employer. Mm-hmm. It's very, you know, it's prominent and public like Chipotle and Trader Joe's and others we've seen, but it's way bigger. That's like one of the things that people should appreciate about it. I think how it took off or how it sort of got going has a lot of the themes we talked about with just the pandemic. I mean, when I talked to these baristas in Buffalo way back in September before anything was really out there. The first shop. Yeah, yeah. Those first folks in Buffalo, they were basically like, look, we just worked through a pandemic. They have a lot of nice progressive rhetoric here. We want stable conditions. We want a seat at the table. We want safety on the job with customers coming in and we want decent pay. I mean, it was baseline bread and butter issues were in the conversation, but a lot of it was also just like, we just went through a crazy thing and we want to make sure that we have some structure, stable system that if things go crazy again, we want to have a union that can that can provide some assurances, essentially. You know, they started especially at the beginning with this tagline that was partners becoming partners, basically saying Starbucks corporate uses this terminology of... They love to call them the partners. Yes, your partners. Yeah. A lot of places say associates or, you know, whatever, like Trader Joe's is like crew members, but they always use language that is not workers. But if you call the company, on on that, you know, say like, okay, you're going to say we're partners with you. What that would mean is there was some sort of representative of the partnership. You would sit down at a table and say, hey, we're partners. How should this work? So the the first workers I talked to were really leaning on that. And that was, that was just interesting. It seemed like it wasn't that there was an inciting incident of like, this thing went terribly wrong, but more like, look, we just went through hell with you. Can we find a way to build a structure for this not <laughs> happening again? Not Maybe like a, a little less bad, you know, next time. Yeah, yeah. Just like, just like that we, we can have a say in how this is going to go down. So I, I think it was definitely had to do with the pandemic. There was a lot, you know, if you look at it, there was these campaigns in New York State at places like Gimme Coffee and Spot Coffee. There was Starbucks campaigns as well over the past decade that were attempted, but they were always, for the most part, they were always at smaller local chains rather than taking on a national giant. And the other thing I would say about what the, the big difference, besides it just being taking on a huge employer, the other big difference about the Starbucks campaign in terms of organizing food workers is that they went for an NLRB election, which is like, makes it sound very wonky. But essentially what they said is, we're going to actually take this to a government overseen vote with rules and up or down, everyone gets to cast a ballot. We're going to force a vote at the store and see how it goes. What they didn't, I don't think, realize with the chain reaction thing that they caused was winning that first vote. People were like, oh, the government will oversee a vote and you can vote at these stores. You have to remember Fight for 15, which is the main food service organizing project of the past 10 to 15 years, never went for votes. And for, you know, there's a strategy behind not going to the government for these overseeing elections because they're really stacked against the workers in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But the fact that Starbucks went for a vote and won it created this trigger moment where people like, well, shoot, I want to vote at my big employer. You know, I think this was a, a huge, important piece of the strategy there, even if it was maybe not intended. Sure. One of the things, I mean, there was a big answer, but one of the things I want to jump right on is something that comes up a lot in my reporting about the craft beer industry, about the craft beverage industry generally, which is those progressive mores, right? Like this idea that Starbucks, which exemplifies on one hand, it is one of the biggest private employers in the country, but on the other, 
they've done an extremely good job of positioning that consumer facing brand as sort of a standard bearer for a lot of the liberal belief system that you might see on that lawn sign, the in this house, we believe that water is life that, uh, you know, yada, 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 which by the way, never mentions anything about workers. Uh, there's, there's no labor line on that, on that lawn sign, but you know, Starbucks has, has come to kind of exemplify a lot of those morals to the point where it's often used as a, a shorthand for liberals in this country, right? Latte sipping liberals is, That's right. is is closely tied to the Starbucks corporate image. But what workers were finding, you've described, and I've read other reporting, and this is also, this tracks with my reporting on the, on the beer space, is that workers hear this rhetoric, absorb this rhetoric. They're often asked to project this rhetoric and this worldview out towards the customer, but they feel as though there's a disconnect between what the corporation is actually offering them and, and how they're being treated as workers versus how the corporation comports itself in the marketplace, in the public square. And that, I think, it's fair to call that a form of corporate hypocrisy. And I think cynics will often say, yeah, big deal. Obviously, this is all branding. You should never expect a corporation to be on your side. But the workers in in the case of Starbucks you know, are making the point, the reporting that I've read, that well, actually, like we want the company to live its values because we believe in those values. That's part of the reason we're not just leaving to go work another job, which is another, you know, that's a counterpoint you hear a lot against organizing is just go find another job. Tell me a little bit about how, you know, hypocrisy sort of cuts both ways, right? Like it can create apathy, but it can also create energy in a movement. I'm curious to hear your take on why you think this was such a powerful fulcrum in the case of the Starbucks drive. It helps to have workers who have been inundated with ideas of social justice from the boss. Like if the boss is going to say, we are this XYZ company, we're equitable, we care about inclusion, we care about our values, we lead with that stuff. There's different levels of that at different companies, but Starbucks really does lay it on thick. And for years has laid it on thick of like, we are... It's kind of their whole deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so of course, like, you know, you can be like, yeah, I, I never bought into any of that stuff, but it helps to be able to say, I think it both changes like where the workers are coming from. They're coming from a place of, well, yeah, the company said that it was okay for me to like live my values and this feels in line with that. So I'm going to take the first steps. And it also helps for the company to be a little constrained in how, you know, the, the interesting thing is, do they feel, does corporate feel that they their scorched earth campaign has its limits? I don't know. I mean, so far they've fired over 120 union or union leaders. They've closed stores. They've, you know, there's been plenty of harsh tactics, skipping over union stores for raises and benefits increases, you know, really vicious stuff. You know, traditionally in a union campaign, you are looking for those vulnerabilities of the employer's image. What are they committed to? Are they, and if they say they're committed to this, do they actually care? And not just do they actually care, will they give it at the table, but do they actually care if if your campaign starts to put a crack in that foundation? Is that a leverage point for the workers? Yep. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to imagine Starbucks, at least as we understand it as consumers, making a rightward push in abandoning those mores that they project out because they've been so successful for the company over all these years. 
that there are people at you know the executive level, at the regional management level, et cetera, et cetera, who who genuinely believe them as well, which is probably forcing some existential crises. Not not to extend too much sympathy to the bosses here on the Fingers podcast, but like you have to imagine behind closed doors or, or in private you know households when they come home from work is is forcing some crisis of confidence and conscience amongst the executive class as well. Yeah, I mean, even just to take it away from those individuals, how are they feeling about it? The fact is that there's a difference between having operated a big business in a very low unionization industry, in a very low unionization private sector for decades, to one day have to wake up to the union is different than being the Howard Schultz equivalent in 1960, where there's a union landscape. You know what I mean? Like. It's very different to one day have to be like, wow, do we have, you know, they have HR departments, they have union busters on staff for decades, I'm sure, but they don't have a unified way of dealing with this like insurgency at Starbucks, you know, and and nobody does like everyone has is still flat footed by it. The labor movement establishment is flat footed by it and the corporate establishment is trying to make up what they're going to do as they go along. So I do think probably some executives were like, man, I thought I was progressive and now I hate unions and that's confusing for me, <laughs> you know, but even the whole industry is just like, what? We don't, we're, we're 2% organized. We're not going to organize the 10th largest employer in the country. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's just a, you just have to sort of, and in that scrambling is when there's just totally different possibilities. I mean, people, another thing on the Starbucks campaign is people do not appreciate how, how, just unusual it is that you have stores, dozens and dozens of stores striking, you know, going on strike before they've won their union vote. This doesn't tend to happen in the private sector labor movement in this country, or it didn't before this year with any real frequency. And now it's just sort of the logic of young workers. It's yeah. Like, yeah, we're going to put on a button, go on strike and then form a union. Like, yeah. That's totally wild. That's a rising militancy. I mean, it's at the grassroots level, but the idea to be that adversarial that early on in the process suggests, I mean, I take that to be a good sign for where the labor movement's headed. I'm curious how you assess it. This is the thing. It's like trying to keep your head screwed on of what does this actually mean right now is tough. You know, you can look at polling, you can look at new union filings. There are new union filings that are, you know, meaningful. There's the 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 data actually just came out this year that year over year we're 50% up in terms of new unions petitioning the government for a vote, right? Meanwhile, that's a peak only since 2016. Right. So you're like and 2016 is not a peak of anything. Right. You know, we're, you, you, that's when still the bottom of the ski slope if you want to zoom yes, out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We just like hit a hit a little bunny jump or something, <laughs> right. uh, which is great. You know, you got to it's good to hit a bunny jump. But the thing I am always trying to impress upon people for big picture is like, dude, we are at a 40 to 50 year low of union activity measured in most ways. Now we're at a little bit of an uptick of that low. And maybe that means we're going to come all the way out of the low. But And it's not just to be a pessimist or real negative. It's just to understand the level of our labor movement in this country is the bits of activity you're seeing are still really low in terms of history and other countries and, you know, what we'll need to get to to talk about a labor movement that's actually transforming the private sector economy. And in, uh, obviously, people have differing opinions on the role for organized labor. Even if you're in favor of it, you have different opinions for how far it needs to go, how closely tied to broader revolutionary projects it is. But, you know, there are clocks on 
this, there's time horizons on this. Climate is one of them. Inequality lock-in is another where you know the ultra-wealthy billionaire class gets so rich that they basically have the resources to just insulate themselves from any societal change. So there are there are reasons, you know, not just like like a football game where you like advance the ball down the field and then you turn it over on downs and then it comes back around. Like this is a zero-sum game ultimately, and and you know, like there's a clock running on it. I want to talk a little bit about zooming out from Starbucks or sort of moving on from it. One of the things that has been exciting about this drive, I think for me, but also for a lot of people observing is that it's happening in so many places at once, right? Like over 200 like shops across the country. People don't necessarily comprehend if if you're not in the middle of this stuff that like there's no like connective tissue between those shops other than the fact that they are all Starbucks workers employed by the corporation and like they see what's happening at other shops and decide to do it at their own. That to me seems again, like, you know, I like to, I'm in favor of more organized labor. I like to take some encouragement from the fact that such a fractured landscape can, you know, find common cause and can sort of mirror actions that are being taken in one place and and reflect them in another. I cover the craft beer industry a lot. There are 9,000 breweries in this country. There's no one central employer, but a lot of employers have a lot of the same ills and ales, so to speak, no pun intended. When you look at the way Starbucks workers, Starbucks Workers United, were able to kind of sweep across the country and communicate tactics and share resources, et cetera, et cetera. What lessons would you like tease out or, you know, highlight for other workers in, for example, craft beer industry or another fracturous industry that has some parallels to coffee? What can they learn there? You know, like what are some of the things that you you have seen working in that context? Well, first, I just want to say on the on the question of the geography and how spread out it is, mm-hmm. it, again, understand the union movement as it exists. Half of union members, over half of union members live in seven states. So is that right? Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even you know that's really, that. Yeah. No, it's it's totally real. And we have some important national union formations or, or you know, obviously these unions all have members in all of the states. Sure. Here sure and of there. course. Yep. And you have UPS is a national contract. The Postal Service is a national, has national contracts. So they exist. But for the most part, you don't have labor taking on capital on a national level. You have big consolidations of corporate pockets and especially industrialized pockets, and especially public sector pockets that you have density there. But there's a lot of the country that is sort of a labor desert. And Star- a Starbucks campaign, the Starbucks campaign has really taken that on directly. So you have, you know, you had workers striking in South Carolina. Oh, I know. I was, Starbucks, until know? recently, I was, I was living in South Carolina and I was actually down by the ILA Longshoreman's local in Charleston, South Carolina. And that prior to the Starbucks drives in South Carolina, like they're basically one of the only labor shows in the entire state. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just the fact that there's this national employer that's and and the union is taking a national approach to it has just created presence for labor in places that it just wasn't. It, it might There might be members in all these different places. There are members in all these different places. But having an active fighting labor movement in all these different places, I'm excited to see how that changes the geography of it. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing you said of like, how do you organize as a Starbucks worker in some isolated store in this national, you have this national concept, national network. First of all, the Starbucks Workers United seems to just have done fantastic work on the on the sort of infrastructure of member to member organizing. One of the most important things to me about the campaign is that they very quickly, out of necessity, 
but but also out of just sort of their approach very quickly they were like okay staff can't possibly run this thing members have to take not just leadership roles in their shops, not just baristas being active in their own workplace, which they obviously is a necessity for any union campaign to succeed, but also on the national level. We're going to have working members take on roles like training other stores how to get started Mm. and and walking them through that process. We're going to run strike schools that are run by working baristas because it's not Workers United does not have... 20,000 staff to throw at this thing. You know, right. there's like a small crew of paid staffers who build infrastructure, but Starbucks in particular has brought in, I mean, they have an organizing committee that has hundreds and hundreds of members who are involved in it because you're talking at a scale that needs that level of activists, not just supporters, but literally people who are going to do work on the campaign. So like big picture, the, the amazing thing about the campaign to me is that it's so worker-led. Like all union campaigns have to be worker-led to win to some extent, but there that's a spectrum. You can have workers sort of get that's well put. Yeah, to yeah. the press, you know, and like go, go in front of a podium and talk to a reporter and, you know, hand out buttons at work. Another version is the workers are actually designing the campaign and the staff's role is to get out of the way and support where they need support, provide lawyers, provide some infrastructure, provide some advice, but ultimately the workers need to take action. Point of clarification for anyone who didn't quite follow that, uh, Jonah means the the union body staff. So if you were organizing with CWA, for example, Communication Workers of, of America, they have their own lawyers, they have their own professional organizers who draw a paycheck from the union body. And then there are the workers at this or that shop you know, whether it's a newspaper or TV station or whatever, who work for that media outlet, for example. So the distinction there, that's what he means when he says staff, not staff of the place that's being organized, but the staff of the union itself. Right. Thanks, Dave. I just wanted to jump in because some people don't grasp that distinction. Of course. Yes, totally. I mean, I think, you know, we've had people, uh, I've talked to people who basically say like in the thirties when, when serious, serious density change, meaning serious numbers of workers joined unions who weren't unionized before, like to a scale that actually changed the economy, workers had to be willing to like run through a wall. Unions would get a phone call that would be like, yeah, we actually need you to come down right now because we're all on strike and we want to sign up for the union. This is not how the labor movement has operated for the past 40 years, 50 years. And that's not just because the unions are, you know, have lost their way, although I think there is some some critique to be made there. But it's also because, you know, workers have to really want this for it to happen. The thing that they found in the Starbucks campaign is that Starbucks workers really want this. And the union made the right move in saying, you want it? We'll we'll go hard. We'll throw down. Sure. Let's file in South Carolina. Let's go in Louisiana. Let's go on strike in Texas. Mm-hmm. Even if we just talked to you for the first time two weeks ago, if that's where <laughs> right. you guys want to go. We are going to support you. We're going to run at the, f- they're just storming the castle of this huge employer. And I, I just think it's extremely commendable of the staff of Workers United for letting this thing get as wild as it has in a good way. Just like let it scale up, let it go, see see where it goes. And most of all, the workers who have said, sure, I'll, you know, I just learned what a union is six weeks ago. I'll join an organizing committee. I'll go on strike. I will fight for this. And I think that newness, that the fact that, I mean, it's sort of like the employers caught sleeping too. The workers don't, when I talk to some of these workers, they're like, I didn't realize that like, it's weird to go on strike 
two weeks after you said <laughs> sure you sure college, you know like and and i want to be like yeah no it's not weird don't think it's weird it's good go keep going whatever yeah, you need to right, do. right. But, but it's just not the you know it's not what's been the culture of our U.S. labor movement and the fact that they're just bringing this new headspace to it, it gives me a lot of hope that it could not just win at Starbucks, but it changed the culture of the union movement saying, okay, let's be a little more ambitious, aggressive, and, and try new things. In terms of like support from outside of the work, you know, like we know that union sent pro-union sentiment at least by some measures, is at an all-time high since, you know, in the last 40 years or so, maybe longer. If you spend a lot of time on Twitter, which I don't advise, but I do anyway, you know, people are very excited about what's happening, not just at Starbucks, but at, at Trader Joe's, which we haven't even talked about, but there's organizing drives there, are very excited about what's happening at Amazon, seeing Amazon workers step up and organize unions at the at the distribution center's there's, I think, a tendency, you know, like speaking of like not being a culture of organized labor in this country or kind of having lost some of that musculature, you know, uh, that's certainly on the side of the workers who are coming at this new and fresh and that can that can bear fruit in, in interesting ways. Like, for example, being prepared to strike, you know, before you even have a contract to defend. It also can kind of create a lot of flailing amongst people who are pro-union but don't really understand how to express it outside, you know, and want to egg a drive on or want to support. There, you'll see a lot of like calls for boycotts whenever this or that like location is is fighting for recognition. They just fi- they just fired someone who was organizing, and you'll see. I would say like pretty well meaning people. I don't think they necessarily are doing anything nefarious. But we should boycott Starbucks, or you know, we should boycott Trader Joe's because they haven't immediately recognized their union, or whatever the case may be. I don't. Again, I don't want to like condemn that behavior, but it it does seem to need redirection, right? Because like that's not necessarily helpful to these types of drives. These products, though, are so personal to consumers that consumers, in the case of coffee, in the case of specialty foods, you know, are probably more willing and interested in getting involved than they would be in the case of, for example, like commercial meat packing, right? Like you don't form a personal relationship with your meat packer. Maybe you should, but that's not the economy we have right now. How have you seen consumers who are not workers at you know these drives, how have you seen them successfully get involved or how would you suggest that they try to get involved? Well, in the case of Starbucks, you know, there's this no contract, no coffee pledge, which essentially is here's our non-member support list and we're going to call on you to come to actions or honor a picket line or do X, Y, or Z strategic thing. And and you're right. Basically, for a lot of reasons, it should be, you should, you should try to follow the union's lead on stuff. If not, because, you know, it's the union and, and they have been working on this, you should follow their lead. Also, because it's really hard. Starbucks doesn't care if you don't come for a day. for. Coffee. They don't give a shit. <laughs> like you, you just, you know, the theory of change in the labor movement is that workers have a strategic position by virtue of running the place. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that if you're not a worker and you don't run the place, you don't have that strategic <laughs> position. And that's not, you know, it's not a knock on you, but it's just this hard thing. The thing I always say to people is like, what can you do to help is what, what workers who are organizing in the private sector need is cover fire from other workers who are organizing. You basically organizing your own workplace is the best thing you could do for these other for, for the entire sort of union movement, because we need more density for people to be more insulated. To, to, to give an example, I mean, this is just the basic economics of it. If you have 
these 9,000 craft breweries, and one is unionized and demanding a living wage, they are instantly have a huge target on them for for everyone. I mean, they're economically they they are in a worse position than their competitors. Politically, everyone's eyes are on them. Versus if you know, two hundred of those breweries organize, not just because we love that those workers are getting better for themselves, but it also gives each of the other group and the whole industry more cover from from the exposure of trying to ask for more sticking your neck out. Right. So it's hard to say, like, you know, I don't want to say there's nothing you can do as an outsider, but you work somewhere and, or people you love and know work somewhere. And if they organize their, their shop, you know, this is like the number one thing you can do to contribute. I do think it also matters to talk about it to people. I mean, just like everyday people, not to preach and evangelize, but Talk with people you know in your life. Did you see the Starbucks thing? What do you think about it? You know, the one of the amazing things of the past year has been being out in the world and talking to random strangers who know what a union is because they saw Starbucks and Amazon in the New York Times. Mm. You know, I'm just like, this didn't happen five years ago. Yeah. So I do think like just sort of carrying the torch and not not as like the union is awesome everyone do this. That's great. But even just engaging people in your life about, did you hear about the union thing? What do you think of that? Get people talking and thinking about this stuff um, is probably more useful than, you know, being like, well, I'm going to Pete's or whatever your, your move is. (laughs) Right. right? Like it's more useful uh, than posting. Yeah. 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 I mean, talk to people. This is like the, the other thing is that like union organizing, especially the first, couple years of any union campaign is just talking to people. There's not much else to it. This is, it's always strange to explain this to folks. It's like, we talk about it like a skill and it sort of is, but it's not like being a mechanic, you know, it's like, you're literally just having more conversation with more people, letting them speak, hearing what they have to say and being for them when they want to talk about it more, you know, like it's, it's, since it's so, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to express, but it's just, it doesn't, it's not more than just your relationships and your connections and helping people think through, you know, what they value and what they're ready to do. Okay, that was the Fingers Podcast with Jonah Furman. Hopefully you found the interview as fascinating as I did. To keep up with Jonah, you can follow him on Twitter at Jonah Furman. Check out his work at labornotes.org and subscribe to whogetsthebird.substack.com. Who Gets the Bird is an essential resource for keeping up with the week-to-week updates on Labor's March in America. I highly recommend it. I'm a paying subscriber. I think you will find your money well spent on the work that Jonah does there. One more. Big thanks to Jonah for coming on the Fingers podcast, and big thanks to you, yes you, for supporting the Booze Letter with your paid subscription. Only paying friends of Fingers have access to this episode, so make sure you share it on social media so everyone else realizes they're missing out and decides to pony up. Signing off from Fingers HQ, it's your fearless Fingers editor Dave Infante reminding you that labor is entitled to all it creates, including all that stuff we love to drink. Bye bye